What is going on, DC? This is Move the District, hosted by yours truly, Mike Yassin. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a physical therapist, and this podcast is dedicated to highlighting members of the Washington, DC health and fitness community and giving you the correct information with no BS to help you live a life that's active, healthy, and fulfilled. All right, welcome back to Move the District, episode 19. I can't believe we're at 19, almost to 20 now. Uh, Today, I have a pretty special guest here. She is not only a big league athlete, she is a uh, triple board certified physician in pediatrics, pediatric pulmonology, sleep medicine. Uh, She currently works at Fairfax Neonatal Associates, which is a multidisciplinary clinic where she primarily works with uh, in sleep disorders as well as pulmonology. Uh, her name is Dr. Melody Hawkins. Melody, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Mike. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Did I get everything right in that intro there? I know we had Yeah, about yeah. That, that, that was, was pretty good. Yeah, that, we can clarify that the sleep medicine is in adults and children. Perfect. <laughs> yes, yes. So you, you work with children and adults, which is obviously has its own challenging issues, but uh, kids and adults both have issues sleeping. So that makes sense. They sure do. (laughs) (laughs) So now how long have you lived in the DMV area? Two years now. Yeah. Two years and a couple months. I moved here right after I finished fellowship. What brought you to the DMV? My job, basically. Finished fellowship and kind of had like a really big uh, decision to make as far as transition and whether to stay on where I was at Yale or to come here. And it was actually a really big decision that took a long time. But long story short, I ended up here and I think it was an awesome decision. Nice. So were you, you were contemplating staying at Yale where you had just... Yeah, that that was kind of my plan all along. I had... um, kind of been set up to do this academic research type career and then just a lot of things happened as the year went on I started having a lot of different uh, thoughts about that uh, second thoughts I suppose and then some other things happened and long story short I kind of decided to try to focus on me a little bit more and uh, what that would be like and it's been really interesting and that was kind of part of what brought me to you actually and all the health and fitness stuff. That's awesome. Uh, I love I love getting people's stories when when we do this show here, and and I know you have such an interesting story. I mean, just the oh, thank you. 15, fifteen years of, of being in school <laughs> is just it's a long road. It's a long, long road. Uh, I thought I thought physical therapy was a long time, but now so you're originally from Louisiana, right? Yep. Grew up small town Louisiana. Now and then, and then what happened? Very small town. I'm probably more rural than anyone else you'll ever meet. What was, what was uh, the name of the What was the name of the town? It's called Heflin, and it's not a town. It's a village. Oh, oh a village. Sorry. Yes. And we lived outside of the village gotcha. um, on a working cattle farm. Working cattle farm. So you grew yep. up with, with the cows. I, yep. I learned to drive on a tractor, all, you know, whole nine yards. <laughs> and, and so you grew up there, and then you went to, where'd you go to school? For college, I went to Louisiana State University, and that was actually quite the transition going from where I was, which was kind of, you know, the um, very prominent, everyone knew me, of course, in the village, and then you're one of 35,000 and not so special. And yeah, that, that was an interesting transition. Yeah, it's go, you go from like the, the big fish in the small pond to the yep. very small fish in a very large pond. I, I grew up a lot that year. Oh, I, I would imagine. How, now, how far is Baton Rouge from, from Heflin? It's four years. And so at that time, I didn't actually know how to get there, like how to drive wait, from wait, wait, there and wait, back. Wait, wait, wait. Say, how far is it from, from it's Baton Rouge? Four, it's four hours. Oh, I thought you said four years. And I was like, oh, sorry. Did I? I'm sorry if I did. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, but so, so four, I gotta say, four years walking. So that's a long time. But no. Um, <laughs> Four hours. Okay. So that's, that's not that far. You can get home if you needed to. Yes. So, so that was good to have an escape, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's a big challenge to go from, go from that. I know like I went from like a larger high school to a small school and I, like that was what I, I looked for that uh, on purpose so that I could like kind of like stand yeah. out a little bit more. And I had gone from um, being with my horse like every day and I had to lease her out during college. And that was probably one of the hardest things for me was just not being with her all the time. Oh my God. 
So yeah, you rode equestrian now and you competed yeah. at LSU? Yeah, it's very different for intercollegiate athletics. For equestrian, they do it completely differently. You basically don't show your own horse. So the host school provides all of the horses and you show up and you kind of randomly draw a number, which is your horse. You get on the horse, but you're not allowed to touch the horse or the reins until it's your turn. They lead you to the end gate and you go in and you jump like a three foot course on a horse you don't know anything about. So it's it was really fun. And pretty intense at times and it kind of separates those people who uh, don't necessarily maybe know how to ride so well but they have a really um, expensive nice horse that does everything for them from the people who really know how to ride so that was the cool thing about it ah I like it I like the the real the real riders versus like the posers mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so you were obviously a real rider yeah, well, of course, because well, because I wasn't very wealthy when we grew up, and so I was only able to ride. You know, it's kind of an expensive uh, sport, the whole equestrian thing, and I was able to do it because we had our own farm, so I didn't have to board, and I did like worked off, you know, lessons and things like that. But um, yeah, for most people who do it, they usually have a lot of money. <laughs> do you still, do you still ride today? I don't. Um, I haven't recently. My last horse died um, just over a year ago. I had her for 20 wonderful years. And I had and I had also bred some horses. I didn't tell you about that. um, I uh, bred and trained two horses when I was in high school. And then I had I sold them. And so I also made some money from that, which kind of helped set me up. But um, yeah, I haven't ridden since I've been here. I've thought about it. It's just I don't know. It's very expensive and I don't really know where to go, but I'm open to, if anyone knows of any good barns, I'd be, I'd love to try. Any new barns hit Melody up. She will, uh, she'll come out there and uh, talk to you about sleep also. Uh, (laughs) So, so then you went at LSU after LSU, you went to med school at LSU too, right? Yes, but that I did it in Shreveport and that was because that was right. I was in, um, Baton Rouge when Katrina happened in college. And so after that, the um, med school in New Orleans was very much kind of up in the air what was going to happen. And so I ended up just committing to going um, to LSU Shreveport. And I did something called early decision, which was kind of a suicide thing. It was I'm only going to apply to one school. Mm-hmm. And if I get in there, that's great. And if I don't, I can't apply anywhere else. So thank God I got in. There you go. And you, you went right out of undergrad, right? Yeah, I've, just, I've gone straight through everything. That was one of the reasons why this last couple of years has been so different for me because I literally hadn't had a break until now. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so, so what was the, what, what made you want to go to med school? What, uh, what inspired you? <laughs> I have always basically said I wanted to be a doctor, I think since like the third grade. I'm not really sure why. I was never, no one in my family is a doctor. Every single person in my family is a teacher or in education. And I always knew that I didn't want to do that. And I think that's one thing is just to know what you don't want to do. (laughs) But I'm not sure why exactly I wanted to be a doctor, but that was always my thing. And I went into biology. I, I actually had a hard time my first year of college and I was told that like I wouldn't be able to do it and to get in and that just made me want it even more and so you know put my mind to it and made it happen that that happened to me also my uh my freshman year at at university of scranton we they make you take as an exercise science major they take you they make you take uh two semesters of biology two semesters of chemistry in your freshman year and then they make two semesters of physics your sophomore year but the the bio and chemistry but like labs each have uh labs you know, in the same semester is a lot, a lot of work. And uh, I remember I made it through, so I made it through the first semester, barely. I went into, it was really chemistry was really the problem. I went into my chem final, my freshman year, first semester with a B plus average. And I left the final with a C plus average. So Mm. that'll let you know how well I did in the final. And then the first two tests of my sophomore year uh, of my second semester of my uh, freshman year chemistry, I got like a 51 and a 48 and I was like, you know what, let me go get a drop form and I probably need to uh, retake, retake chemistry yeah. in the summer. So I was like, this is not working for me. It's uh, interesting and- you said that because I have a very similar experience. My first ever math test at LSU, I remember distinctly, I got a 32. Oh, 
and calling my mom crying afterwards, of course. But I stuck with the class and I managed to bring it up. Oh, man. Yeah. Now, was that one of those tests in college where like everyone like they got like below? No, 50? no, it was just me. Um, I was just, I was very, I had never studied a single day in my life when I got to college. I'd never taken a book home K through 12. I just went to a very different, I guess, type of, it's a public school, very small town. And it is just very different than some of your kind of college prep schools. Right. And so my first day of math class, I turned to the guy next to me and I said, man, I don't understand this teacher. Sometimes she writes her eights normally, and sometimes she writes them sideways. And he just looked at me. And so that was basically my base level of knowledge when I started. So I had to kind of teach myself how to study and just learn a whole bunch of stuff. So I did really bad the first semester. And then after that, I got straight A's. <laughs> oh my God. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, I was, I was very, I was very similar in that. Yeah. I, I hadn't spent a lot of time studying in high school and then freshman year of college, you show up and I, I played baseball in college. You know, you're going yeah. out, you know, parties, things like that. And, and, and next thing I know, I like had gotten a, a two six my first semester. And I was like, this isn't going to cut it. That sounds very familiar. Yeah. They like put me on probation. Uh, all this because I had, I had had, I had a scholarship that I was supposed to keep a 3.25 GPA. Uh-huh. And I obviously did not do that the first semester. So I was like put on probation immediately. Um, <laughs> and I was like, all right, time to get my head out of my ass and yeah. start uh, actually trying, I guess. And, yeah. and it, it, got, it got better. Second semester, I went up to like a two nine. And then after that, it was like a third, you know, three, three, something like that. And I, I kind of like each semester got a little bit better, a little bit better and like slowly figured it out. Um, yeah. And it was actually funny to follow up with the chemistry was, so then I, my plan was to take it that summer after uh, my freshman year when I was back home in New York. And I, the date that I had as the start date for chemistry was actually a week off. So I showed up thinking it was the first uh, like night of class and it was actually the second week. It was like every Wednesday for oh. three hours as I showed up the second week. And so the professor was like, why weren't you here last week? And I was like, because it started tonight. And he's like, no. And so he almost, oh, no. the guy almost kicked me out of the class because I had missed the first week. And luckily since I had, when I had dropped the chemistry lecture, I didn't drop the chemistry lab and I finished the lab. So he's like, all right, since you did the lab part of this already, he's like, I'll let you stay. But uh, I almost, it was like the skin oh. of my teeth. I was almost ready to become a history teacher at that point <laughs> and, uh, and have a much different uh, career path. But yeah. I'm glad was, that didn't happen. Yeah, I know. Exactly. So it was very, uh, very like skin of my teeth there where I just survived. Um, when you went to med school, what kind of difference was it between like, like the studying between like, I guess, preparation for uh. med school versus like undergrad? Because that's oh, like a man. big shocker, right? Yeah. Well, I studied a ton in undergrad, I'll be honest, because I was a biology major and I was trying to get the best GPA that I could to get into med school. Right. Um, so I, I did study a fair amount. But as undergrad, or sorry, med school is a whole other thing. So mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about it as far as like, you know, trying to drink from a fire hydrant. And that's right. basically what you're doing. You know, um, you study you know, all the time, you know, depending on if you go to class or not, some people do, some don't, just depending on how they study the best. I mean, you're, depending on the person, you're looking at least like eight to 12 hour days, especially like when you're pressing or prepping for your steps, which there are multiple. Yep. Um, yeah, and it's a lot. Tell people what the steps are so that for those who don't know. Okay, yeah, there's step one. And then um, as far as back in the day, that was a really important one. Their score on that kind of decides which residencies you're eligible to apply for. And then there's step two, which has two parts, a um, a written part and then a step two CK, which is where you like go in in the simulated environment and uh, with patients who are actors and you go through these things and you basically have to pass all these tests. Um, that was very interesting. Yeah. But, uh, basically a series of tests that determine what kind of physician you're going to be. Correct. Pretty well, you still get to choose. Um, but if you get a bad score on certain tests, you might, it's less likely that you'll get into some of the more competitive residencies. So, so would it be accurate to say maybe, there was maybe it, it was more of a stress getting into med school than it was getting through med school. 
for me, yes. I, I didn't really have any problems getting through med school. I've, I've, heard, I've heard that before where it's like, as long as you get in, you get in. Yeah. I mean, there were tons of people that filled out. Don't get me wrong. Oh, but, well, right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, same thing in PT school. There was, there was something, one of my professors told me on the first day of PT school, he said, he has, he said you know, to be honest, like at the end of the day, whether you're first in your class or last in your class, at the end of the day, they're still going to call you doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was <laughs> one guy that had a psychotic break and ended up killing his girlfriend and himself. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. And he was, he was on his way up to the med school when they stopped him. So that, yeah. Wow. That is uh that's, now that's a story you don't hear every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's the, that's what med school will do to you. Yeah. And I, that, that's one of those things where like you go through all the work of like undergrad, your whole life, right. Of, of getting into school, going through undergrad, getting to med school, you're doing all this, doing all this work. And then like, you end up going, you know, just losing your mind, I guess. And it's yeah. just, it's just, it's a sad, uh, sad story. Um, my, oh. my, my friends and I, we used to joke about like making it through PT school after like seven years of school and then like not being able for whatever reason, not being able to be a, a physical therapist. And like, you're uh-huh. like, the last seven years of my life were just waste. Well, I mean, there are people that that happens to, they can't, you know, have trouble getting a residency spot or something like that. It's yep horrible yep and then so after you finished med school uh what was where did you do your first residency yeah i so only did one residency and that was in uh, baton rouge louisiana so basically went back down there and that was for three years at a place called our lady of the lake children's hospital and that was really awesome actually pretty unique because it was kind of a new program that had just started um so they didn't actually rely on us as like the workhorse of the the hospital so that That's was nice. kind of nice yeah that was actually a big luxury because we got to do a lot more like learning and kind of choose the type of learning that we wanted right I feel like residents typically get abused, used and abused. Uh, I don't want to comment too much, but by and large, <laughs> you probably have a lot of truth to that. Yeah, it's the same thing. And I mean, with PT uh, 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 internships where, uh, you know, we'll go to, and do a clinic and then they're like, all right, here's your schedule. And you're like, wait, I'm supposed to learn how to do this first. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's interesting. Like, uh, like, oh, one- just, you'll learn on the job. It's fine. Uh, as far as uh, sleep related when I was an intern that was the year that they started the work hour rules which you may not know about this but they implemented these work hour rules where you couldn't do like if you were an intern you couldn't do the 36 hour shifts you were limited to at first they made it only 16 hours which was like incredibly short and a lot of hospitals had problems covering because you know because of those limits so they ended up going back on those a few years later but I was able to benefit in that, um, yeah, I uh, didn't have to work until my later, my, at least my first year, I didn't have to do the 36-hour shifts. That's great. But then, but then they, they did it back, and I did the other two years. <laughs> wow, man. Uh, what, what made you want to go into pediatrics? It's, that's also interesting, because when I started medical school, I said that was the one thing I knew I didn't want to do. Oh, that's funny. Because um, I had had a few really bad babysitting experiences, oh. uh, and otherwise hadn't really been exposed to children, because I'm a, the youngest of my family by far. But then when I did it, I just loved it. I loved children, um, and... Uh, it just clicked immediately. So I knew, yeah, I really like working with the, the parents and the, and the kids. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, so then when did you end up uh, deciding to go into pulmonology and then, mm-hmm. and then I guess further down the road sleep? I, I kind of always knew I wanted to do a fellowship or some sort of subspecialty. And uh, I, you had to decide really early back when I was doing it, you had to apply by the middle of your second year. So I had decided by the beginning of my second year. Um, and I originally thought I wanted to do allergy immunology, but then I decided on pulmonary basically because you get to see a lot um kind of the gamut from clinic to hospital to really sick kids that are on their deathbed to kids that are, you know, not so sick and doing okay. And just all sorts of from like CF, ciliary dyskinesia, asthma, exercise issues. There's just a lot of stuff that interests me. And then I don't really have any personal experience, but the idea of not being able to breathe, I just can't imagine how terrifying that would be or what that would feel like. So, um, I have a lot of uh, empathy, I suppose. That's the stuff of nightmares right there. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, be- I believe that. And then how'd you end up deciding to go uh, into the sleep, the sleep direction? Mm-hmm. So it, uh, one of my attendings at Yale did the sleep medicine. She took a break and basically did a sleep medicine fellowship. And she was, um, had been practicing for probably 30 years or so. So that was kind of an interesting time to take a break or a year off of work, essentially. And she loved it and kind of told me all about it and kind of convinced me to do it. Sleep, And I'm so glad that I did. Sleep medicine, um, it makes me very highly uh, in demand and more desirable because there are very few of us in the country who have done both pediatric pulmonary and sleep. And so that gives me kind of a very in-depth knowledge of sleep breathing disorders for children that a lot of other people don't have. And I, I think I saw on your Instagram, you're one of 328. Is that right? Or oh, what, oh, that was, I think, my number for the sleep board. So, ah. Yeah. I think, yeah. So, yeah, I was surprised that it was so low. But no, pediatric pulmonary. I, th- I have it over here. I'm no. I'm like a thousand something. <laughs> all right, all right. Not but, a, that one's not special. But and, and, that, and that was not. Sorry, specific to pediatric sleep. I'm not sure exactly how many of us there are, but probably less than fifty to hundred in the country. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, think it, I mean, I I imagine it's so rare to have that like triple board certification. <laughs> Yeah, so it just gives me more kind of demand power, more wantedness, different areas. I could go to different places in the country and they would probably want me. That's, you know, a nice, I guess, asset. How, uh, how can it help your patients? Oh, well, also I'll mention that I have a very in-depth knowledge of the brain and neurochemistry, and that's from some of the research that I did during my fellowship, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, so I it helps my patients in that I'm extremely knowledgeable on all things pulmonary sleep related and um, have a much more kind of in-depth knowledge of things like hypoventilation and hypoxemia, when to become concerned, when treatment is indicated, when it's not, that sort of thing. Now, were you, did you have issues with sleep like in the past and you were kind of like, this is something Uh, I'm interested in on a personal level? Yes, I I did. I would say I suffered from what I now know is delayed sleep phase syndrome starting in junior high. I kind of suddenly, I remember it was like seventh, eighth grade and all of a sudden I couldn't fall asleep until one to 3 a.m., Kind of no, no matter, and I would get in bed several hours before that, and that was back in the. I mean, my parents were super strict. We weren't even allowed to watch TV during the week when they were home, so there were definitely no electronics in the room or anything like that. And uh, yeah, I think that was kind of around when puberty happened for me, and I think that was kind of related. So that went on for many years, where I would sleep from you know two or three to six a.m. because I would always I had to get up in the morning and go down to the barn to feed my horse so I got up pretty early (laughs) yeah horses yeah um so then that basically went on and then you know during uh, in college I made my schedule adapt to that so my kind of primary study time was like 7 8 7 p.m to like 1 2 a.m that's like my best awake alertness time and then I had later classes so that is kind of one nice one nice thing when you can make your schedule fit your like more innate circadian rhythm um, issues. Right, right, uh, right. But then whenever I, you know, got to med school and, got, and getting into residency, you don't have that luxury. And then in residency, you're constantly just going, your schedule is all over the place. You're going back and forth from nights and all different, you know, links of times. And like every three days, you'll be on overnight call. And then during fellowship, you, we were on overnight call a lot. And so, you know, your sleep gets disrupted all the time. People are constantly calling you during the night and it can be really hard to get back to sleep. So um, I had all those issues, I guess, built up over all the years. Right, right, right. And how did you, um, how do you, how do you manage it? How do you manage it? Oh gosh, lots of things. So I mean, we can kind of go through, you know, some of the basics, but now I kind of set my life up to um, 
to, to, to get more on like a, a really consistent schedule when I need to. So if I need to do that, like, you know, 10 to six schedule, then I can make myself do that by manipulating light and what I'm eating and my activity level. And I kind of shift around when I do those things. Um, but then when I don't have to get up early, a lot of times I'll let my schedule slide back, which it instantly will. Of course, it's always easier to stay awake later than to go to sleep earlier. Right. Oh, yeah, so I can, I can stay up all night pretty much any night of the week if I were to you know allow yourself allow myself yes <laughs> uh yeah I mean I think that's always the biggest issue that I you know see when I talk with people about sleep is like is like getting to bed is like mm -hmm. how do I get to bed like what you know I will I, mention oh go ahead. no go ahead, go ahead I was just saying one thing though if you have problems with insomnia pretty you know problems falling asleep problems staying asleep and it's not a delayed sleep phase thing it's more like I you know no matter what the schedule is I just can't sleep as much as I want to then you want to be careful about that idea of just getting in bed earlier and earlier and earlier because there's that idea of not wanting to spend too much time in bed when you're awake especially if you have those issues with like psychophysiologic insomnia like mind racing ruminating type thing the whole can't turn your brain off right. you don't want to be getting in bed and laying there for hours. So I'm really good about, I don't get in bed until I'm sleepy. Right. And so I'm usually asleep within a couple, I mean, really fast when I get in bed. Right. Cause I, I it's kind of like the concept of like spend as little time in your bed, like unless you're actually sleeping, like yes. don't go in bed, watch TV, read a book in bed, like they try not to like eat dinner in bed, like try to minimize your time in bed so that you use the bed for its sole purpose. Yeah, the idea is that your brain associates the bed with sleeping instead of associating it with wakefulness. Right, yeah. That's something I think I've struggled with over the years is I'll go to bed, quote unquote, go to bed, and excuse me, turn the TV on for 30 mm. minutes, an hour, something like that, to like watch you know, maybe just an episode of The Office. I'll be like, oh, I got to watch an episode of The Office to unwind. And, yeah. uh, and I think reality I definitely made it worse for myself where yeah. I was like just coming in keeping the TV because I have a TV in my room now but I don't think we ever we watch it maybe once a month hmm. and that also brings up the issues of you know like blue light and melatonin secretion and that sort of thing mm -hmm. um, so I'll just touch on I'm sure you've heard you know that blue light can impair melatonin secretion yep. and so not only does that possibly delay your sleep latency or your time to fall asleep it can also impair the quality of your sleep and that's because melatonin um, can help you cycle through your sleep stages optimally and so if your melatonin has been suppressed and some studies have shown that uh, watching uh, like have being exposed to blue light before bed can actually extends for the time the effect extends extends for longer than just the time that you're watching it basically right um, and so it could be that those first couple hours of sleep you're also not getting optimal quality maybe not getting into deep sleep as quickly as you would otherwise yeah, I mean, as we say this now with my blue light glasses on right here. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, those are. I, uh, I have, I, that was a, a quarantine purchase for me is like with all the increased virtual sessions, I'm sure you were doing similar things. Yeah. I was spending all this time in front of a computer as we are right now. And I was like, my eyes are tired. Like I was sitting more. I was like, my eyes are tired. I was like, what's going on? And, and then I, I bought these glasses and it was really interesting where I was wearing them and I usually would like come home from work around seven, you know, I, my, my eyes would be tired. And then I was noticing that the more I wore these, it'd be like eight, nine o'clock at night. And I'd be like, Oh, I'm still wearing my contact lenses. And, uh, it definitely made a difference in terms of like helping me just like allow my eyes to relax a little bit more than previously. Yeah, I've had a lot of people mention that they like those. You can also, there are settings on your phone that you can do to take yep. the blue light out. And there's also software that you can download onto your computer to filter out that blue wavelength. Night, night mode, right? And on your iPhone, you go into night mode. Is that what it is, right? Yep, yep. It's uh, settings, display and brightness, and then night mode. And I would probably recommend putting it on at least like one or two hours before you go to sleep. I really don't notice a big difference. I think I have it. I think I have my phone set to go with the sun, right? You can set it to go as like, as the sun sets, it becomes like more gradual, I think. Oh, okay. That would make sense. I just have mine for 8 p.m. That also works too. 
but yeah, I, I try to, I, yeah, I, I think it dims as the, as the sunset, the phone dims. And then as the sun rises, it brightens. I think that's the idea so that you're not okay. using your phone as much after the sun sets. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then I know like, like Twitter has like night mode on Twitter. And I think, I don't think Instagram does or, or Facebook, but I know Twitter definitely has like a night mode. I don't cool. have Twitter. I don't know. Okay. I'm not a big tweeter either. It's more of a, a personal account that I just use to like follow people. But okay. I, uh, I, I know that they have a, I believe they have a night mode, which is, which is cool. Um, and then let's talk about melatonin here. Cause melatonin is one of those things where I think a lot of people take melatonin and have taken melatonin, you know, yeah. and it's, it's a supplement and you don't need a prescription for it. Um, is so, there, well, well, go ahead. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, so that is true here in the U S but you should be aware that that is not true in many other countries. Um, in most countries in Europe, you need a prescription to have melatonin. And so I do want to mention that melatonin is a hormone. So anytime you're taking melatonin, you're giving yourself hormone therapy. You should be aware of that. Mm -hmm. And now is there, because like I, I feel like it's pretty commonplace here in the United States. Um, is, is there, how much evidence is there to support it? Move the District is sponsored by Big League Performance and Rehab. At Big League Performance and Rehab, we help active adults stay that way, pain-free and active during the sports and activities that they love for life. We do this by working on four different areas. That's movement, nutrition, stress management, and sleep. When we optimize these four areas, you feel better, you move better, and you live better. Head to bigleagueperformanceandrehab.com to see how we can help you stay active for life. Like the, the use of melatonin? Okay, so, so we need to... We need to back up then and talk about how and why we're using it. So let me give like my well, traditional spiel on melatonin. Give me the so, how and why, please. So there's two different ways to take melatonin. There's the way that most people um, have probably heard about or tried, which is to take melatonin to try to help you fall asleep faster. And it doesn't work for a lot of people that way. It does for some. It tends to work better for younger children, in my experience, and people who their insomnia isn't as severe. And then it also can be very useful in certain children with neurodevelopmental abnormalities like autism and things like that. Um, so for that, I would recommend um, taking it about 30 to 60 minutes before you want to go to sleep at least. And you usually want to start uh, low. You know, ideally you would want to start at one milligram and then increase by one milligram if you want to be conservative, like every few days to a week, up to a top dose, if you're an adult of maybe like five to six milligrams, I wouldn't go beyond that. I would not take or buy the 10 milligram tablets. Melatonin is not one of those things where it's necessarily the more the better. There are instances where we use high dose melatonin um, for like REM behavior disorder, but we won't get we won't get into that. That's like a whole rare thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty. Um, not applicable to most people. So for that, I would just say you want to make sure that you're taking it earlier in the evening. You never want to wake up during the night and take melatonin if you're having trouble sleeping. So like if you are having trouble during sleeping during the night, you've just missed your opportunity. Do not take melatonin during the night it's because enough. it can because it can actually make your issues worse. And this is why. The second reason that you can take melatonin is what's called its chronobiotic effect. So melatonin is the body clock regulator, right? It's the hormone of darkness produced by the pineal gland regulated by the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And so it... Talking to a medical encyclopedia right here. <laughs> Sorry, stop me if I get to no, whatever. No, that was great. Um, so melatonin is one of the primary things um, that helps to set your circadian rhythm and it's thought to be released during darkness and that's why if you're exposed to light it impairs that secretion but getting back to the second way to take exogenous melatonin so I was talking about the so melatonin is produced in your body that would be called endogenous production and for that it's actually much less than a milligram that's produced endogenously so I want you to know that anytime you're taking melatonin 
melatonin over the counter, you're probably taking more than your body would be producing. Um, and then also the other thing to know about melatonin, sorry, before we get to the second, the chronobiotic effect is that it's not FDA regulated. And so you don't really know exactly what you're taking. Um, some studies that have been done on melatonin have shown like a 400 and something percent discrepancy between what they say is in the melatonin and what you could potentially be taking. So although you think you're taking one or two milligrams, you don't actually know, um, especially if it's a gummy or, you know, something like that. Is it okay. safe? Is it still safe? It is safe. Yeah. Melatonin is safe, especially in the short term. As far as in the long term, there haven't been a ton of studies done. As far as studies done on children specifically, because that's my area of expertise, there has been a study that was done on um, some a group of autistic children that followed them for two years. But that's about it. There's no like real like super long term um, data. Um, as far as data in like mice and animals, there was some remote concern for how it affects like your your um, puberty and your reproductive organs. So sometimes the only time I worry a little bit is like young girls who are taking it for long periods of time. But otherwise, it's pretty safe. You can't really overdose on it. As an adult, you would say there's no real, no real harmful effect. I wouldn't say there's no harmful effects because if you take it wrong, you can mess yourself up as far as your circadian rhythm and your sleep schedule and all that. But you're not going to, uh, you're unlikely to have a serious Got medical so, event. So but, if you, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I just wanted to finish up real quickly with how you do the chronobiotic effect. So this works for everyone. So basically the idea is that you would take a small, so this is if you want to advance your sleep schedule. Basically, let's say move your sleep schedule up from midnight to eight to 10 to six. So you would take a small dose of melatonin, half to one milligram, five to six hours before your current bedtime. And so typically that's like with dinner or something like that. And then you basically, the idea is that you would start to fall asleep earlier gotcha. and then you can continue to track that back. That was going to be my next question is, is when should someone take melatonin? Yeah. So it depends on what you want. Do you want to fall asleep earlier or do you want to fall asleep faster? Or are you trying to move your sleep schedule up? So if you're trying to move your sleep schedule up, then taking melatonin within like two hours of when you want to fall asleep is not going to do that. Right. And then, but if you want to say, say, you know, I typically try to go to bed at 10 o'clock every night and I just have problems falling asleep and I can't fall asleep mm -hmm. at 10. When would I take, would I take it? Two to three hours before? I, would I take it five hours before? No, if you just want to try and see if you can fall asleep faster, then I would take it an hour before. Mm -hmm. If, um, But if you're like, you know, normally falling asleep at 1030 and you want to try to move your bedtime up to 10, then you could try the taking it earlier. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, that's obviously, like we said, it's, it's something that you can, you know, it's, it's pretty readily available here. Mm -hmm. uh, at what point does someone need to go see someone like you? As far as, well, melatonin or other no, things? No, no, like okay. it, 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 an inability to fall asleep. Oh, for it. Yeah. Well, um, a lot of people, by the time they come to see a sleep doctor when it's for issues of insomnia, a lot of times it's been going on for years. Right especially in adults. So, you know, as far as when is it appropriate I, to go see a doctor, I would say whenever it's impairing your life or your happiness, that might be an easy answer, I suppose. But yeah, a lot of people suffer for years and years, or they try a lot of different things before they come in to see a doctor. Yeah. Why do you, why do you think it is that they, people just tend not to like seek out help? Is it because they just don't know it's available? I mean, what, what is it? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I mean, I know even for me, I don't like going to the doctor. I haven't for, been to a doctor in like three, I love going to you, but I haven't been league. to uh, a regular doctor in three years. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's probably like, there's, there's like, I think there's like that fear of like, the doctor is going to tell me that something's seriously wrong or something like that. Uh, I, don't, I would yeah. rather just avoid it altogether. Yeah. Or they may not think that they can help or who knows. Right. Yeah. I think that, I think that makes sense. Uh, and then walk me through what a typical like first visit is, you know, like, like what are some of the things that you'll do or, um, you know, or some of the things that you'll go over with them? 
Yeah, so if you're coming to see us in clinic, then we would, you know, have you come in, take your vital signs, um, and then have you fill out some paperwork, just some like questionnaires and things like that. And then we basically go through a full, very in-depth visit. Our new patient visits are one hour on the sleep side, and our follow-ups are 45 minutes. So that's really awesome because I... I, one of the things I love about working here is I feel like I'm finally able to practice the way that I always would have wanted to practice. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times you wouldn't necessarily be able to do that unless you had a lot of autonomy, you know, as far as saying like how much time you get to spend with each patient and things I like that. On that one. Yeah. So that, so I really love that I'm able to have that much time um, to talk to people. And in sleep medicine, you really need a lot of time because you have to get to know them and it's a complex Absolutely. issue. And, you know, a lot of times these issues have been going on for years. And also a, um, a lot of times a person might only see a sleep doctor one time in their life. So I try to cram in as much as I possibly can, just as far as education and all of that, and all of that into the visit. But as far as back to the visit, we would do a basic um, history and then we go through like your sleep symptoms try to rule out um, the causes of medical sleep disruption so commonly things like sleep apnea or abnormal uh, body or leg movements during sleep and then go through like your sleep environment your sleep schedule take um, do a physical exam and then talk usually about like whether or not um, any testing is indicated like a sleep study or labs or anything like that right when, uh, when, when would a sleep study, or for those who don't know, what is a sleep study? Oh, yeah, great. So a sleep study, or it's also called a polysomnography, it's basically whenever you um, monitor someone sleeping. And so there's different levels of sleep studies. So um, in adults, they have started doing a lot more of the lower level ones where you've probably heard it's called a home sleep test. Mm -hmm. And even those, those are different levels, but it's basically usually a, a nasal cannula so you can monitor their respiratory effort a belt around their chest so you can monitor like if they're trying to take a big deep breath um, and then a finger probe to monitor their oxygen so you see if their oxygen drops so that's kind of the bare minimum and then if you come into a lab um, you get a lot more other things too so uh, EEG so we know if you're awake or asleep and how you cycle through the sleep stages that's one of the really cool things I think about getting a sleep study is being able to see how you cycle through the sleep stages and your hypnogram and your sleep efficiency and all of that um, and then let's see we also look at there are sensors on your legs to look for abnormal leg movements and an EKG so you monitor your heart rate that's also on the home one right. and for pediatrics we also monitor your carbon dioxide levels to look for something called hypoventilation not breathing as much as you should because that's more common in kids than adults Mm -hmm. Is that looking at like respiratory rate or is that more? Like it's more than that. So we definitely look at respiratory rate, but your carbon dioxide levels um, are uh, separate from that. Got so you look at like the O2 saturation then something along the lines of that. So, so your oxygen saturation is separate. That would be the pulse oximeter. This is your actual carbon dioxide level, which oh. is hard to look at. A lot of times you need a blood gas to note. So of course we breathe in oxygen, we blow off carbon dioxide. Right. And so we want to know how much carbon dioxide you're blowing off with each breath. And that can be hard to, to measure. Um, usually you need a blood gas, but in the sleep lab, we're able to do it two different ways, uh, an entitle or a transcutaneous. I won't get into that, but yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Nice. And then um, in terms of like sleep study, what, what would be the outcome of a sleep study? What would we be able to determine yeah. from a sleep study? So, so in kids, a lot of times the primary reason to do one, if you're looking for sleep apnea, is whether or not they need their tonsils out. So you're basically looking to see if they have sleep apnea, and if so, if it needs to be treated. Um, and adults, it's not always um, that and that straightforward. So you're basically looking to see if they have sleep apnea, and if so, how severe it is. So it's kind of like, do you just have snoring or do you also have like big pauses in breathing that cause your oxygen to drop and things like that? Gotcha. gotcha. So, so by the way, so I'll just, I guess, throw in a 
quick plug for like symptoms of that would be um, if you have a large- This is, this is sleep apnea you're talking about. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Obstructive sleep apnea is the most common, but there's also something called central sleep apnea um, where your brain doesn't tell you to breathe and you just have pauses in your, in your respiratory effort. Just forget to breathe. Yeah. So if you've ever seen anybody that has that classic like pause followed by a big gasp, and um, that's concerning for sleep apnea. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then what's, what's the treatment look like for sleep apnea? Uh, so it really depends on how severe it is. It could be nothing. It could be a nasal steroid spray. It could be losing weight. It could be a dental appliance, like a palate expander. Mm -hmm. um, it could be oxygen, could be CPAP, could be BiPAP. Um, could, yeah, it really just kind of depends on your age, how severe it is, whether you will tolerate the treatment. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, a lot of times we like try certain things and the patient says, I just can't do it. So then we try other things. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's no uh, easy answer. Right, right, right. Um, there was in my deep dive of the uh, internet uh, regarding Melody Hawkins before this, oh, I, uh, I came across a blog post you wrote about uh, sleep versus your diet and your diet versus your sleep. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think and, that was one of the initial ones I wrote. And I thought it was, I thought it was really interesting in terms of, you know, how, how, how can we better manage, uh, you know, sleep through our diet? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, so I had done a lot of work into metabolism and appetite regulation when I was in fellowship, kind of like an in-depth, like the neurochemistry of it. Mm -hmm. And that was actually one of the things I thought was so interesting was when I graduated fellowship, I knew so much about appetite and metabolism and your brain and all those things, but I didn't know anything about all the practical stuff that I would need to know to actually be fit. I knew zero about that. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, so how, how can we better regulate sleep through the diet? Yeah. So one, I would say having regular meals can help just with your circadian rhythm. Um, and there's, there, as far as like what foods to eat to, that affect your sleep specifically, that's not something we focus on a lot. Although I did mention like there are these foods that have, you know, melatonin in them or have uh, serotonin or kind of help your body to increase that. That's probably not going to make a big significance on your sleep overall. Probably what would make a bigger significance is the food you eat and how it affects your gut microbiome. And this is stuff that's not necessarily so proven and nothing that I ever learned about in fellowship. But um, I do think that there, there is a role to play for sure, because a lot of hormones are produced in your gut. And those are hormones that um, affect your sleep. Right, right. So, I, so I think that eating in a way that promotes a, a healthy gut is probably one of the best things you can do. And then um, in general, you know, the thought is to not eat when you should be sleeping because that's a signal to your body that you should be awake. So you want to try to not take in calories really late. And then also just issues with like acid reflux and things like that. Um, there's some debate as far as like what's the best thing like pre-bedtime snack I think it's probably just not making it very uh, processed, you know, making it something kind of a uh, simple carb, e easy to digest. Do you have a, uh, a bedtime snack that you uh, enjoy personally? I don't. <laughs> I, I would say if anything, I normally just have some sweets or chocolate. So that would not be what I would recommend anyone else. <laughs> I've been doing like a, like a piece of dark, dark chocolate, like after dinner, just to oh, for like well, one thing. I that, that, that's fine, but I will mention a lot of people don't realize dark chocolate actually has a fair amount of caffeine in it. So yes. if you're someone that's exquisitely sensitive to caffeine, you might want to be careful oh, about no. that. Because Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> but, because it can stay in your system for like six hours or so. I do want to mention this because this was another thing that I didn't realize until after, after I had finished fellowship, as far as caffeine and its effect on your sleep, it also um, impairs the way that you cycle through your sleep stages. So even though I was always the one who wanted a cappuccino after dinner and would say, I'll still go to sleep, no, you know, just fine. It's not going to be an issue. It can still um, impair the quality of your sleep. Uh, that's, and that's similar to like alcohol, correct? 
Yes. Does the yes. same thing. Now, is it as significant as alcohol or is, or is that still like more? Mm. I don't know if there's been any head to head comparison. That probably has a lot of individual variability as far as your tolerance and how much you're used to it. Alcohol is different. And the, the issue there is that when you metabolize it, you'll wake up. Right. Because right. I, I think and I think that's always like the idea is like, oh, well, like after a night out, you know, I'll sleep for 12 hours but then you wake up hungover still and you're like, well, yeah. what the hell? I slept for 12 hours. And, like, no, you had a. And then, oh, and then the, the alcohol, of course, um, decreases your slow wave sleep and your room sleep. Right, right, right. Caffeine does not do that though, or does it? Mm, it's not as clear, I would say, but I would say if you have high levels, then you're probably not going to cycle through your sleep stages like you normally would. What, uh, what are your recommendations in terms of caffeine then throughout the day? <laughs> Yeah, I usually say for people who are really sensitive, you probably want to stop it around noon or 2 p.m. at the latest. I struggle with that myself. Um, and then if you're really, really sensitive, you might want to try cutting it out altogether because some people just really are. And even a, you know, a late morning cup seems to have an effect. So, so what you're saying is no Red Bull vodkas when you go out to the club at night. <laughs> well, well, it depends on uh, what your priorities there. That might be uh, having fun priority night, and then we'll focus on sleep other nights. But no, if you want to prioritize your sleep, I would not do that. No Red Bull. Yeah, if sleep is your priority, do not drink a Red Bull vodka. That makes Correct. sense. <laughs> now, in terms of the diet, though, having so in terms of sleep having an effect on your diet, if you're not getting good sleep, how does that affect your diet, though? On the flip oh, side. That's the really fascinating part. Um, so I'm sure everyone has heard that, you know, having poor quality sleep affects your um, appetite and it also affects your metabolism to some extent as well. But the interesting effect on your appetite is, of course, it has that like, you know, increased ghrelin, decreased leptin effect. And so you have that more um, like hedonic type eating drive so you want that to that so that means you want to eat things that are not healthy for you so oh, you're craving yeah. you know the the cookies and cakes you're not waking bird, up big mac baby yeah you're not waking up wanting an apple and you know an egg white omelet um that's kind of what happens and and everybody knows you know after a big night of sleep that tends to happen the next day and they've done a lot of um interesting studies on medical students where they slept deprived them and then like gave them a full feast you know and kind of saw what they would pick oh god and so they would they would default more towards the unhealthy items uh, yeah, whenever they were sleep deprived, they did. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely something I notice. Like myself, I'll like wake. I typically wake up most mornings around four thirty, four forty-five, and then on the weekends, you know, I'll sleep in. And Saturday morning, I wake up. I'm like, I want a breakfast sandwich. I want a bacon, egg, and cheese on a bagel. Like I, yeah. like, I like I, that. That's something I definitely see in myself. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can so go for it. Bacon, egg, and cheese. Oh, yeah. So that's more of a, a direct effect. And I would say there are potentially some other kind of more long term effects too, just as far as like um, your hormonal status and levels of inflammation and how that affects your metabolism overall. So I, I am a bit of a believer in that, you know, if you're looking to, you know, optimize your body composition or whatnot, I would prioritize your sleep first. You know, I would not jip yourself out of three hours of sleep to go do a workout. You're, you you're probably not getting any further ahead. No, it's one of the things where you just end up burning the candle at both ends of the stick. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and my, uh, my grandfather, he had a saying, uh, every hour, or he still has, he still has, he, he, uh, he said every hour before midnight counts twice. Yeah, there is some, and I never learned that in fellowship, but um, since getting out, I have seen a few times some studies that have suggested that that uh, window of like 10 to 2 seems to be when you get your most optimal sleep. Yep. I will mention, you know, as far as like circadian rhythm issues, that's why your body is designed as humans to sleep at night and be awake during the day. And every cell in our body has an internal body clock. And um, if you don't 
basically sleep at night and be awake during the day, there can be really significant long-term effects. So not just talking like, you know, the the day-to-day type things like the appetite and stuff like that, but they've shown studies in like shift workers, you know, for hospitals Mm -hmm. and all other sorts of things that they have higher rates of basically everything you don't want. Cancer, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, depression, you know, mental issues, lots of bad stuff. And so we know that even if you sleep, you know, from let's say 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., you're not going to get the same restorative value from your sleep as you would if you were to have slept at night. That's that. That's that's awesome. I think that's that's definitely um, pretty eye-opening. I think in terms of like people who are like, oh well, I went to bed at 12 or I went to bed at two and then I slept till I, I was working with a bunch of high school students uh, back yeah. in the spring and and once their their school schedule got messed up, it just their their whole sleep schedule was like, oh, I'm going to stay up till four. I'll sleep yep. till 12 and like I'm still getting eight hours and it's like no, not quite the same. I, I do this every day. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, like not quite the same. Uh, so that that makes sense. But it's funny, yeah, the, that saying, my, my grandfather used to say that to me. And I was like, okay, did like, okay. And then sure enough, here we are. And there's <laughs> actually some fact to it. I love it. Um, all right, so we are almost out of time. But uh, I want to go through a few more things with you here. Uh, okay. So now you've been in DC for a few years. Now you have a particular favorite uh, workout class that you <laughs> How do you know? Yes, yes. I, w- I was there this morning. So six a.m. Share with the viewers what what that is or listen. Yeah, so I'm fairly obsessed with Solid Core. Um, I would say I started it back in November um, when I was trying to recover from um, having a broken leg. When I started, my leg was technically still broken. I didn't tell them that. Um, But I had these really severe muscle imbalances from um, not being able to use my leg for several months. And I I thought solid core was just a really great way to do a lot of isolation work on each leg. And then um, also, I I, I, I just, I've never been to a, workout um, class until I had moved here. And Uh so my experience is still pretty limited. And that whole idea of, you know, like the dark lights or, or, you know, like the the lighting and the Mm -hmm. music, I had never experienced that. And I remember the first time just being like, what is happening? (laughs) Am I at a dance club or a workout? But, you know, I love it. It makes it so much fun. It's such a mental challenge. It's just, you know, you're so uncomfortable the entire time that you're in there. And to me, it's all about like how hard I can push and stuff like that. And I just can't tell you like the way I feel when I walk out. It's actually a bit of an addiction for me. I have to try not to go. So now you've done over 200 classes. Yeah. Wow. I, I was slowed down by um, the quarantine because I did not like the virtual classes, but I was there uh, the day they closed. I was there there the day they opened and oh I pretty God. much go, yeah, a lot. That's awesome. I think that's, that's so cool. I think I mean, when you make exercise fun, it, it changes things up a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like it. And I've made friends there too. So that was go. nice. The community. That's excellent. Um, what's the last book you read? Oh, right now I'm reading a book a book called Sleep Paralysis. I have it right here. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Historical, psychological, and medical perspectives. So probably no one else is going to want to read this book other than me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm a big nerd. So is it, is it a medical like textbook or, or is it? Uh, no, it's not exactly. Um, it's just kind of like a deep dive into all aspects of sleep paralysis and to me it's not medical because it does go into like the historical part of it but I think everyone else probably would consider this a medical book gotcha do you ever read the book why we sleep no I don't think I have that's a good one okay I'll write that down why we sleep yeah um what's the best thing that's happened to you in the last week hmm oh I know so Friday um, my dog, basically, I thought he was going to die. He collapsed oh, and oh. had this like really, really scary episode. And then um, like 10, 15 minutes later, he hopped up begging for food, happy as he's ever, as he's ever been. And he's been great since then. So uh, they, he- think he, they think he fainted. He had had surgery two days before. Oh, wow. Um, 
So, yeah, that was a whole nother story. He had to have an emergency uh, be neutered. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. At, at the age of 13. Ooh. Yeah, poor guy. So Thanks. when he passed out, I, I was afraid he was going to die. And then when he popped back up, that was definitely the, a good point. And you're a, you're a big whippet. Fan. Oh, yes. yes. I'm obsessed with Whippets. It's probably the only dog I'll ever have. I really love Whippets. <laughs> love it. Love it. All right. Melody, if, uh, if people want to reach out to you and connect with you, where can they find you? Yeah. So if you, uh, I'm part of the pediatric and adolescent sleep center. So if you Google us, I would go to our website and you can read all about my profile um, or my partner's profiles and you could call and um, make an appointment with me if you would like to be seen for um, either sleep medicine or if you want to see me on the pulmonary side, if you have a, so I want to be clear that I see uh, children and uh, young adults, but don't see just adults as of right now. But if you had a child who you wanted to have pulmonary function tests or anything like that, you could also see me over on the pulmonary side. We're part of the Pediatric Lung and Allergy Center. And then if you want to, I guess, connect with me personally, not be um, a patient, you could DM me on Instagram. I'm at, at Melody Hawkins 3 There you go. And you'll see her at a solid core class. Yes. And anyone who wants to come take a solid core class with me, I'm down. I go pretty much every day. Which, uh, which, which studios do you go to? I usually go to Mosaic and Tyson's most often, sometimes Courthouse. And then I've been going um, sometimes to Navy Yard when I've been coming to see you. I don't you have go. a free class right now, but okay. you definitely have to do solid core with me. I'm holding you to that. I know. Do you have a favorite instructor that you want to give a shout out to? No, because I love so many of them. I don't want to single anyone out. So all right, they're they're all really awesome. Fair enough. Cool. Yeah, so I'll put that info in the show notes for anyone who is interested in connecting with Melody. Melody, thanks again for coming on. It was great having you, and uh, I know we'll be talking soon. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to Move the District today. If you want to find out more about our guests or about Big League Performance and Rehab and how we can help you continue to be active and pain-free, head over to BigLeaguePerformanceAndRehab.com to learn more. Thanks, and until next time, keep moving, DC.